Hey, Matt Techman here from Elucidations. I just want to say thanks very much for all the iTunes reviews. They've been very helpful, and please keep them coming. As always, you can find us on Twitter at, at @elucidationspod, and you can check out our blog at Lucian. That's L-U-C-I-A-N Lucian. slash blogs slash elucidations. One other thing I wanted to mention is that since August, we've been doing our hosting through a new startup called Pippa, which is pretty cool. It's actually founded by some former philosophers. And I have to say, I've been very impressed so far. The service is totally free, provides detailed analytics, makes it very easy for you to migrate from your previous host to them. So all in all, it's been a very positive experience, and it's enabled us to get much more detailed stats on who's listening and when. So if you have a podcast and you're looking for a hosting service, you might check them out. They can be found at pippa.io, P-I-P-P-A dot I-O. All right, thanks. Hello and welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman, and with me today is Barry Lamb, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Vassar College and Story Lab Fellow at Duke University. He is also the creator, producer, and lead host of a new philosophy podcast called Hi-Fi Nation, which I highly commend to your attention. As soon as you're done listening to this, go subscribe to it. You might describe it as a similar format to something like This American Life, but with a philosophy theme. And he's here to discuss obligations after death. Barry Lamb, welcome. Hi, Matt. How are you doing? So I thought maybe we could talk a bit about what an obligation is. It seems like, I don't know, like a plain vanilla example of an obligation is you loan me $50. We agree that I'll pay you back within a year. Come one year from now. I need to pay you $50 in order to, as sometimes people say, discharge the obligation, which is just to say, once I pay you the $50 back after a year, I'm no longer obligated to pay you $50 because I've done it already. And it seems like a lot of the obligations we have to each other have this general sort of shape. So what exactly is an obligation? Is that a good example? Or should we start with a different kind of example? I think that that's a very good example. Um, you know, when we use the word obligations, I, I don't mean anything more special than that. We have family obligations, we have job obligations, and we have the kind of obligations that you talked about, which are promises. When you make a promise to somebody or an agreement, you have an obligation to fulfill that promise. And, you know, with family obligations, it's not clear that you've made a promise to anybody, but you have these family obligations. If it's very important to your grandmother that you're at her birthday party, you have a family obligation to go to her birthday party, even if it's more fun to be at a barbecue with your friends or something. Okay, yeah. Maybe there are different kinds of social rituals that we can engage in. Some of them, like you might say, generate obligations, like making a promise that puts you under an obligation you weren't under before. But then maybe there are other kinds of interactions we might have that don't sort of like create the obligation out of thin air. It's just maybe you kind of just have an obligation to certain family members. So they come about in different ways. But we all have this sense that like for certain people, we owe them something or we ought to do something for them. Mm -hmm. That's right. And these are the kind of obligations that we have towards particular people. And I think there's a lot of obligations that we have that aren't really for particular people. But you might think that we have an obligation just to be good or something like that, right? Or not be just mean to just generally, not be mean generally and to particular people as well. So I think it's a very broad term um, and it's a very, term we're all very familiar with. 
Okay, so you don't have to be obligated necessarily to individual people. You could just be generally obligated, whatever, to be polite. You know, you're not, it's not like you have to be polite to one person, but you could just be obligated to be polite in general. Yeah, sure. I think that's true. What about to yourself? Can you be obligated to yourself or does that not make sense? No, I think that makes perfect sense. So a lot of people hate going to the dentist. And when you take care of a child or something, you insist that they go to the dentist because you really want them to uh, have good teeth. But for themselves, they think, oh, it's just me. I'll just put it off or something. And I think you're obligated to yourself. I think you're obligated to take care of yourself in many ways. And I think that uh, a lot of the things that you owe to yourself, we don't think too much about. But those are obligations to yourself. I think they're definitely there. So these are all pretty familiar types of obligation that we experience in our interactions with other people. But you got interested in some maybe a little bit wilder, more interesting types of obligation. So what are some examples of these other kinds of obligation that you got interested in? Right. I started thinking about inheritance and the idea that when people are dead, that they have these wishes about what happens to their money and not just their money, you know, their property, their body and so on. And I thought, well, since they're dead, they wouldn't complain if people just didn't carry them out at all. (laughs) Right. If like, as soon as somebody dies, all of the living go, well, forget about what they wanted. Um, we'll just do whatever we want with this person's you know, body or this person's money or this person's property. And it occurred to me, why don't we do that? That is so weird if you think about it. No animal <laughs> would think, what does my animal friend want after my animal friend is dead? If some animal dies while eating, you're just going to eat up your share as another animal. So I thought, that's interesting. So how does it fit with obligations? I thought, it's got to be that we feel some kind of obligation to carry out what a dead person wanted that explains why it is that we carry out their wishes. Then that was the philosophical puzzle for me, which was, do we really have such an obligation, right? We must feel it. That's why we do so much of honoring the wishes of the dead. But is it true that we have such an obligation? And it wasn't really obvious to me that we did. And so when I looked, I started looking into interesting inheritance kinds of cases. And what I found down that rabbit hole was an entire economic infrastructure in this country and in other countries too, most notably Britain, Australia, and so on, that was dedicated to executing the wishes of the dead trillions of dollars of the U.S. economy are in this kind of economic infrastructure solely for the purposes of executing the wishes of dead people. Assuming it's a rich and powerful dead person, typically, right? Yeah, but it's not just uh, assuming that it's a rich and powerful. It could be if somebody who is not that rich and powerful and gives, say, $50,000 to a university, and says, once I'm dead, you have this $50,000. Not a lot of money, but what you have to do is you have to have a tree. And that tree has to have a plaque, and that plaque has to have my name on it, and you have to keep that tree living for as long as it's natural life. Okay, That's not that big of a thing, but a university who accepts that money feels this obligation to keep that tree. I'm at a private college where that happens a lot. If you look around, there are benches, trees, stones, gardens with people's names on it. And those gardens are kept, as far as we know, in in the budget of the university forever 
because somebody gave some money and wanted it that way. So you can aggregate, you can just take a bunch of people, little bits of money, and end up with a large institution that is there to execute the wishes of, say, a thousand dead people or two thousand dead people. And this happens to a smaller extent, but still a significant extent, at hospitals, museums, universities, and so on. And then you get the other institutions, which are big and powerful, large philanthropic organizations that were set up in the 19th century that were done with the money of industrialists like Carnegie, Mellon, and other names, Ford, Kellogg. A lot of them are dedicated to executing the wishes of Carnegie, Mellon, and so on. Yeah, and intuitively, it seems like there's a real difference with a dead person. If we go back to the example where you loan me some money, a year later, it seems like one of the reasons I need to give you your money back is like you actually need the money. But if somebody's dead, they can't need anything. It's, it seems somehow connected to the, what's different about a dead person. Is that right? That's right. And I feel that there is something different about a dead person. It's just strange that we have an entire economic system that assumes that there is no difference between a dead person and a living person. In fact, in America, and I don't know if this is true in other countries, but in America, a dead person can earn money, in fact, earn money forever. So if you have, say, a million dollars that you've put away that's in some kind of trust, and you want that money to go to very a very specific purpose, and then you have some income on that trust, right? So it earns interest. It's in investments or something. That interest is owned by the individual dead person. I mean, like, it's weird to say it that way, right? But the spending of that money is constrained by the wishes of the dead person in that trust. So in this country, at least, you can actually earn money as someone who's dead. And that money, the law and everybody who's involved in that trust is legally obligated to spend according to the wishes of that dead person. Right. And then another relevant issue here is that a living person, you can talk to them and ask them about what their wishes are. So maybe in the case of the money loaning, you change your mind later. Like, you know what? I'm rich now. I don't need you to pay me back. Just, you know, have a ball with your money. I changed my mind. You don't owe it to me anymore. But that's another thing. It's like, all the information we have about what a dead person wants seems like it's confined to the exact things that the dead person talked about while they were still alive. And everything else is a giant question mark. Yeah. And it's even worse than that. If you think about it, it's not even just what the dead person wanted while he was alive. It's actually what the dead person wanted at a specific time while they were alive. Right. Because as you as you mentioned, we change our minds all the time. You know, what you wanted when you were 20 years old is different from what you want now, very different from what you might want when you're 70. And, you know, individuals who are really rich, who have a lot of money to play around with, think about these things, right? They might have a will or a trust or something that's set up when they're 30 or 40, right? If they're billionaires or young, and they might go to some purposes, and then they've learned a lot, and they change their mind, right? Or they've become even greedier. In their 60s, it's going to some other purpose. And then in their 80s, they've softened up a bit or something. I don't know. And it goes to some other purpose. But with these wishes of the dead that we honor in the U.S. economy, there's a specific moment, right? Whatever moment is forever stamped in the law, which happens to be, I don't know, the will as it's almost never the last moment of a person's life because sometimes people say they're incompetent, right? It's always like some penultimate moment. Like before they kind of lost their 
capacities, some moment before that, they're going to say that's the moment where after their death, we are now obligated as a society, as a government to execute the person's wishes now. And this is the kind of thing that really, really bothered me. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to start traveling the country and I'm going to make a podcast about it because I really want to know whether we're obligated or if we're doing something seriously weird and messed up. A common thing you hear out there in conversations with people is stuff like appeals to heroism in battle as a justification for present behaviors. So you hear things like our forefathers and what our foremothers too, perhaps. Anyway, antecedent generations fought and died so that we could be free to enjoy the things we enjoy now. Ergo, we need to, whatever it is, really enjoy yeah. them. Yeah. Would this sort of trope... Is that the same kind of reasoning as the, oh, we need to honor the wishes of this dead person who set aside this trust to do X, Y, and Z? You know, I wonder about that. That's an interesting question because there is this language of we owe our forefathers or foremothers or owe our ancestors a certain thing. And that sounds like they say we have an obligation to live a certain way or be a certain way. And we should be that way because of our forefathers and something that they've done. Um, what's interesting about that case to me is it's not obvious to me that you're doing it because the forefathers and ancestors wished it to be a certain way, right? Because, you know, a lot of us think, well, you know, our forefathers and ancestors wished a lot of other things. Probably if you've been in this country, you, you probably had some for ancestor that wished that you were nicely segregated from your black neighbors or something like that. And we don't think we owe them. So I, w I wonder whether or not that's a case of that. But what's definitely true is that we do talk in terms of obligations to the dead and obligations to the past. Okay, so let me make sure I'm clear about this. Sometimes we use that language, but we re really don't mean it, right? What we mean is you should act a certain way because it's good for you right now. And what's good for you happens to coincide with what your ancestors wanted for you, too, or what past dead people want, too. So, for instance, you know, suppose there's some trust that a lot of people feel like we're really obligated to spend, you know, I'm just going to use Carnegie because he was one of the good guys, I think, spend money for the advancement of knowledge, right? And people say, okay, we're all obligated to spend money for the advancement of knowledge. But I think a lot of the people who work for that trust and work in that trust think, we have such an obligation, mostly because it's a good thing. We should have the advancement of knowledge. And Carnegie was had the foresight to see that that would be a good thing now. But we're not doing it because Carnegie wanted it. We're doing it because that's a good thing to be doing with this money now. The interesting cases to me, and so this might speak to your example, like maybe some of the times we should live a certain way because that's a good thing. And our ancestors happen to have known about that or seen that. The interesting cases are when we execute the wishes of the dead at a cost to ourselves and we don't actually want the things that the you know dead person wanted, but yet we feel obligated to do so. And those kinds of cases are the cases where it seems pretty obvious that we're acting out of the obligation to the dead. Yeah, or maybe if like just to make it a little bit more sensationalistic, you know, what if we change the example to like, uh, we're on a ship and it's sinking, there's room for one person on this lifeboat, and then like an older person says, I'm going to sacrifice my life so that you can get away in this lifeboat, 
I'm going to jump off and drown. You know, take this money that I conveniently have in my person. I'd like you to please give it to my grandchildren so that they can live happily. Please do this for me because I'm making this sacrifice for you. They jump off the light boat and now maybe you feel like you have to go give the money to the grandchildren. That's right. So in your example, the case is that um, it's actually better for me to take the money. I guess that's the question. So um, I think a lot of people would have the intuition is like, no, this person made a noble sacrifice. We should honor the sacrifice they made. So maybe we do feel the pull of the idea that there's an ob- we would have an obligation to someone who sacrificed their life for us. Yeah, that's right. And I think that we do feel that pull. I, I'm not saying that we don't feel that pull. I, I feel that pull as well. But we have to, I think, think very carefully about, for instance, all of these cases. The pull is because we think that the grandchildren ought to have this money and because it's best for them to have that money. So we ought to give them that money. And also the grandfather who sacrificed their life for us and so on wanted it. And that's another reason to no. the reason why we should give it to the grandchildren is only because it was the wish of this grandfather. Right. And so there's a lot of different reasons why we do a lot of different things. A lot of the times we honor the wishes of the dead because it happens to be good elsewhere. You know, there are other good things that honoring the wishes of the dead do. But the interesting case is the case in which we feel a pull, even though we recognize that it isn't actually the best. So in your example, what if the both grandchildren are sociopaths? Yeah, exactly. What if they're really rich, they don't need the money, and they're horrible people or something like that? People. Right. But this person sacrificed himself, and I still feel... You know, he did this for me, so I have to honor his wishes. That's right. And I do think that that intuition is a strong pull. I think everybody feels it. And I think that's feeling of that obligation is the explanation probably for a lot of the way that we set up these legal institutions um, and monetary institutions to honor the wishes of the dead. Okay, so maybe we have that on the one hand. We have that kind of example on the one hand. And then on the other hand, we have these examples of trusts that are set up after a person dies and... Maybe these trusts accrue tons of money over centuries, and suddenly the whole rest of human society is changed around the trust, but the trust is fulfilling the wishes of somebody from hundreds of years ago. That seems like a weird scenario. What if we try to reconcile our intuitions about both of these scenarios by saying, well, there's like a statute of limitations on obligations toward the dead. So you're maybe obligated to do things immediately after the person died, but it runs out eventually, and certainly 100 years later, we're not obligated to them anymore. Is that an adequate way to deal with this dilemma, do you think? When it comes to the practical reforms, we'd have to get clear about what the problem is supposed to be if we honor the wishes of the dead. So there's the problem of we do feel an obligation, and then we have to ask the question, how far does that obligation extend? Does it extend forward in time up to a certain limitation? And then another question is, does it extend to harms that can accrue on the living? And if so, how much harm are we allowed to permit? And so I think that you're talking about the question of time. Maybe we shouldn't honor the wishes of the dead forever. Maybe we should have 100 years, so on and so forth. And I think that that, if you thought, well, the only problem is that we do it forever, and that the world changes so much after a certain time that we shouldn't be honoring the wishes of the dead forever. And I think that's true. But I think that the other question is not just the question of time, but the question of costs. And so those costs can come almost immediately, right? 
because I know enough real examples, I could just give a real example. So, you know, there was this famous case of Leona Helmsley who gave, you know, most of her fortune to her dog, right? Her pet animal. You know, one of the things that people need to think about is the enormous amount of wealth that the wealthy accrue is the result of the labor of the people that are employed in their businesses or whatever, right, that they employ and so on. And they accrue all of this wealth. And when someone accrues wealth, certain things can happen with that wealth, right? One thing that can happen is it just sits there and it doesn't go back into the economy, right? And if it doesn't do that, then those are opportunity costs, as economists put it, right? There are a lot of people that are not being employed. There's a lot of money that's not being moved around in the economy that's for the betterment of people, right? One thing that happens when you have an account that's done for just your dog is a dog can only spend so much money. I mean, you can put it in a you know, a nice home, give it some food for 10 years or whatever. And that's, you know, that billion dollars is sitting there going pretty much to no purpose whatsoever. And a dog spending money in this case means the owner is buying things for the dog. Or yeah, the whatever the trust, yeah, whatever right. the trust is, like the trust says, this money can only be, you know, spent on this animal. And I think that's a cost. It's a cost of putting an enormous amount of money in trusts for certain purposes is that that money is not going towards other purposes. And those other purposes, you don't, I don't have to be Pollyannish about it. It doesn't have to be a charitable purpose. It could just be for the investment of the Ford company or something like that, right? That money has some positive effects on the world. That's a cost. So if honoring the wishes of the dead come at a cost with very little benefit, for the living. And in the case of Leona Helmsley, it's almost no benefit to the living. Benefits a dog. That's is not solved by the problem of well 100 years from now, the dog's going to be long dead, but that money's going to be in that trust or something. I don't know. That doesn't solve that kind of a problem. So the kind of example that you gave 100 years from now, maybe there's a lot of money in knowledge, right? The expansion of knowledge, which is a good thing. All of the people who contribute to the advancement of knowledge are all wealthy, so they don't need more of Carnegie's money. Okay, good. If that happened, then we might change Carnegie's trust or decide that we're not going to honor Carnegie's wishes. But for a lot of cases, immediately after that person's dead, that money used to the purpose of that dead person, and we can talk about the brilliant idiosyncratic cases in America, that money, it's costly to the living to be executing that person's wishes of the dead. And, you know, we have to think about solutions to that problem. Yeah. So it seems like what you're advocating isn't necessarily, well, let's just ignore the wishes of the dead from here on out. But it's like, we should consider the wishes of the dead, but we also have to consider these other things, like the relative cost of implementing their wishes and how relevant it's still going to be down the road after a certain period of time to implement their wishes, et cetera, et cetera. There are other factors as well besides just they wished this. Yeah, I think that we feel too strongly of an obligation. I think that the wishes of the dead give us some reason to do what they wanted, but it's only some. And I think that the other reasons are, what do the living need and want and value? And if the wishes of the dead really conflict with the totality of what the living need and want, yeah, I don't think that we should honor them. Yeah, I mean, that's that's my view. That's the view that I've come to, actually. 
So one of the things that's really cool about this project of yours is that you've arrived at these views, not just via the sort of familiar, let's read a bunch of the literature route, but you've arrived at some of these views by like doing a podcast episode on them, which of course is, you know, that's a method of doing philosophy that's certainly near and dear to my heart. Yeah. I thought it might be cool to actually just listen to some of your podcast to see, you know, um, how some of these philosophical themes come to life through storytelling. So here's a clip from an episode you did on this topic. So Milton Hershey was the founder of the Hershey Chocolate Company, and his wife, Catherine, they were not able to have children. He gave pretty much all of his property to a trust to create a school for the residence and accommodation of poor white male orphans. Uh, Milton Hershey was always of the opinion that girls seemed to be taken care of. They were more more useful. They could work in the home. Boys could be more of a handful to deal with. A small orphanage and school in Hershey, Pennsylvania, for white male orphans. That's where Hershey wanted to put his fortune. But his wishes were even more specific than that. He wanted it to be an agriculture and trade school, and he wanted the boys to be healthy, which means no disabilities, illnesses, behavioral or mental issues. Finally, he wanted the guardians of the boys to sign an indenture, which allowed Hershey to return the children, essentially kick them out, if they violated behavior codes. But there was one feature of Hershey's trust that was not only unique for its time, it's unique even now. Yeah, so one thing that jumps out at me about that clip is how historically specific this entire institution created by Milton Hershey is. It really seems like it's mired in a lot of sort of like common beliefs that people had at the time of his death that we don't have anymore. <laughs> That's to put it very mildly, right? So, if you, I mean, if you think about it, almost every aspect of the idea is something that we don't think anymore. So one thing, you don't differentiate between white and non-white boys as people who are needy. Secondly, this idea of this kind of like 19th century home orphanage type place is not something that we set up for children in need anymore, right? In general, the um, child development experts don't think that orphanages are a good place to be growing up for um, people whose parents have died or are impoverished. Then this whole thing about indentures. The idea is that if you have a child, they cannot have any, I mean, what we would call disabilities now in any way. So, you know, learning disabilities, physical disabilities, anything that counts as a behavior problem, and that's a very narrow set of things. You could kick them out. And you know, think about a little boy who's an orphan. You would kick them out. <laughs> so in a lot of different ways, that's a dated view of what's good for people, right? So that's one of the problems with honoring wishes of the dead. It's not to say that Milton Hershey wasn't being charitable in that he thought of this as doing a good thing. It's just that what you think is good is going to be shaped by and limited by what you know at the time in which you were setting up your trust. The slogan behind your podcast, Hi-Fi Nation, spelled P-H-I, by the way, is it's a podcast that turns stories into ideas. That's kind of a cool idea, and it seems like there are maybe like a lot of different things that can mean. So I thought maybe we could listen to another clip from the show and then think about how what exactly it would mean to turn a story into an idea and then how this might be an example of that. Sure. And they were pretty creative with their punishment. Well, if you were a bedwetter, 
They would make you go wash your sheets by hand and hang them out on the clothesline before you went to school just to humiliate you, you know, just that nobody's going to cover for you, nobody's going to pity you. So Milton's original vision, right, you have to remember what it was. It was, I'm going to start this orphanage, I'm going to indenture them on my farms, and I'm going to teach them a trade. That's the basic model that exists to today. Though they don't indenture them, and though it's not a trade school, the institution still sticks with the provision in the deed that it has to be based in Hershey, even as you climb into 1,000, 1,500, 2,000, now 2,300 kids. Just being terribly homesick, just swinging on a swing, crying, until I was motion sick. I was, I was homesick and motion sick and just bawling, just like just purging all these emotions, you know. So yeah, that's a great example of doing philosophy through storytelling. The thing that I wanted to illustrate without actually saying abstractly is that when you have institutions set up to execute very, very specific wishes of the dead, like a 19th century orphanage, the people who live and grow up in that kind of institution, the living who have to live with that, are the only ones who accrue the costs of other people executing the wishes of the dead. Milton Hershey's not around to know that in the 60s and 70s and 80s and whatever today, that certain ways of raising and educating children are not the best ways anymore. And probably if he was a good guy, which I think he was, he would change the way that he conceived of what that school would be like or what an orphanage would be like. But the trusts, which are a bunch of probably wealthy people who are on that board, they don't get that luxury of changing things according to what's best for people now because they are legally obligated to execute Milton Hershey's wishes. There's some leeway. I don't want to exaggerate, right? If Milton Hershey says that, you know, you have to execute every fourth boy and that was legal in, you know, early part of the 20th century and not now, the law would allow you not to have to do that. And the school today doesn't discriminate against non-white children. So to the credit of the law, it's not total, but it's harmful enough. Or at least executing the wishes of the dead, it's costly enough. And that that kind of costliness, I don't think you get as vividly from a philosophy paper or somebody describing the question in an abstractly or through a thought experiment as you do actually hearing from the individuals who had gone through that kind of experience. Does that make sense? Right. So one of the connections between storytelling and philosophy is that you get the actual human experience that the piece of philosophy is trying to make sense of, investigate, extract from, and so on. And after all, philosophy is a humanistic discipline. It better have context with human experiences. Yeah. The thing I love about this type of example is that it really foregrounds the urgency of philosophy. You know, you have some lived experience. And you have some person who's really uncomfortable with it, but maybe doesn't fully understand why they ended up having the experience they had. And by taking a step back and thinking about, well, how did things get set up this way? And why is this institution set up this way? And then eventually you get more general and more general and you get to like, well, I guess the, the institution that made my life this way is set up in the way it is because somebody's trying to honor the obligation of a dead person. Oh, and now what's an obligation? And now suddenly we're into this like more abstract general realm of philosophy, but we got there by trying to understand why we're in the situation we're in. That's right. 
you know, I made this the very first episode of the podcast for that reason. The way that, you know, that entire structure that you described is the way that I ended up setting up the story. So let's investigate for about a half an hour the intricate details of the Milton Hershey Trust, the law that got us that way, and the feelings of obligation that humans have that underlie the entire institution. And then let's question that kind of intuition, that judgment, that assumption. And this in my view, is philosophy at its best. I think that the medium of audio to actually feel that particular subject, Joe Burning's childhood, is something that is going to bring philosophy to make it seem alive in a way that I think just written arguments don't. Yeah, it's interesting because I think a lot of people in the field might think that doing a podcast is something like this fun side project that you would do after you get tenure rather than like front and center in your research program. But it seems like maybe you're according a more central role to this practice of making podcasts that's an integral and central part of your research program, maybe just as central as the part of your research program consisting of publishing papers. Yeah. And, you know, podcasting is just one kind of thing that people can imagine. I mean, so this medium is some, a medium that we both love. And so um, we actually buy into the power of this medium. And not every philosopher is going to buy into the power of this medium. But, you know, there are other things. You know, there are actually visual documentaries. There's actually other kinds of creative work. What I think is important is that some pieces of philosophy, if not every piece of philosophy, gets connected a lot better to human experiences. And I think that not every bit of philosophy has to be this way, but I think that there's enough philosophers now <laughs> doing enough work on all of the things that you can't do that connects to human experiences that I think that a lot of us can now work in areas that connect better to human experiences. And as far as going to this whole thing about it's a fun thing, it's going to be that way. You know, your listeners are probably not professional philosophers. Some of them might be, but a lot of them might not be. So they don't know this, the ins and outs of the incentive system and careers in this area and so on. But, you know, I have no um, illusions that my colleagues, not all of them, but most of them, will not see this as research but we'll see this as something else. And I think philosophers who are more like you and I, Matt, just have to be okay with that. So they don't see it that way. But, you know, <laughs> I see it that way, and you see it that way. And as long as enough people see it that way, we're going to do something valuable. And um, I think this kind of thing is, for me now, much more valuable. You know, I mean, let me just let you and everybody else in the in your audience know the paper I was working on, you'd love this because you're a philosopher of language. It was Iterated Mutual Knowledge and the Pragmatics of Communication. Yeah, great topic. Okay? Yeah. yeah. And the first episode of Hi-Fi Nation is The Wishes of the Dead and the Milton Hershey School. So, you know, <laughs> Iterated Mutual Knowledge and the Pragmatics of Communication is fascinating. I'm still fascinated by it. And you are too. And you'll probably interview somebody who has cool views about that. And I might do a podcast about that too, but it's going to end up being something that's read by about 20 people and we'll discuss it and someone will respond and it's going to disappear. A lot of philosophy is not like that, but a lot of philosophy is. So I decided, you know, at that point, let me pursue something that is a bit more of a dream, 
but I think that would make a bigger impact for more people. And I think storytelling, philosophy through storytelling is that for me. Yeah, and there's no question, I think, that even the not super-duper popular podcasts still reach a far wider audiences than the really, really popular academic publications. So there's a definite trade-off there if we're just looking at something as simple as, like, number of people who consume it. And then, you know, some philosophers out there will appreciate it, and not just appreciate that it's popularization, but that you can do substantive original philosophy with it. And I actually think that a lot of the episodes of this season— not just let's popularize some idea in philosophy with some stories. There is some of that, but really there's substantive, original philosophical thinking, not just by myself, but a lot of other people that are coming out through the audio, through the storytelling. And um, I think the subjects on this season are see it that way as well. All right. So on that note, how about we listen to uh, our third and final clip from your show? If they're not spending 300000 per kid, but rather 120000 per kid, and they're self-reporting that they have that extra money, where's it going? There's $150 million left over. That sits in the Hershey Trust Company Bank. Another 150 the next year. It's up to 300 You know, it's up to... Fo- that exists without being taxed. That is the main tax benefit of theirs. And that's also the money that should be being spent on the poor kids, but they don't, and so then they have to find a project for it. They spent $75 million of Orphan's Trust money to renovate Hotel Hershey. They started buying up all of these investment properties, amusement parks, hotels. They bought a hotel in Corpus Christi, Texas. They bought lake compounds in New England. They bought the Philadelphia hotels. 2010, $12 million for a failing golf course that happened to be owned by two members of the board. 2016, the board paid $4.2 million in lawyer fees for investigating each other for abuses. They found none. So that's my twist on the Hershey story. So some people have actually told the Hershey story, but I have a twist in that story in that episode. So the twist on that story is that Milton Hershey had written wishes... (laughs) in the trust that were supposed to be executed by the board of trustees. And there's this activist group, the Orphan Army, which is claiming that they're misusing funds from the trust. And they claim to be the real executors or the real legacy of Milton Hershey. We're here to try to force the board to do what Milton Hershey really wanted, which is for all the money to go to the school. Right. And that turns out to be $300,000 per kid per year, really, or to expand the school. So the twist in the story that I'm putting on it is that actually, if you look at what Milton Hershey did versus what he said to do, the board is not spending money all that differently from what Milton Hershey was doing when he was alive. You know, and buying up real estate, putting some into the orphan's trust, but not really all that much, taking trips to Europe, all the kind of thing that you see in corruption and nonprofit organizations, things like that. And so what that story turned out to be for me was that when you had an enormous amount of money that were executing the wishes of dead people, different people have a different claim on what that dead person really, really wanted. So different groups 
actually represented to me different aspect of that guy's personality. The orphan army is like that part of him that wanted to help orphans. The board that liked to spend money on, you know, real estate and so on was that part of him that really loved real estate um, and so on. So this chaos that's going on in Hershey, Pennsylvania, that's probably exactly what would have happened if Milton Hershey kept was alive and kept doing things according to his wishes. Except that, you know, he would have been lionized as an individual. Nobody would have saw a conflict. You know, it would have been like him being conflicted with himself, which is not, nobody ever thinks that. But, you know, because everybody had to be spending this money according to some dead person's wishes, everybody tried to make their wish the dead person's wish. When really a dead person is a complicated human being. What they write down is not exactly what they want. Right? And so that's another problem, I think, that's illustrated by the practices that we have towards honoring the wishes of the dead. The dead are complicated. Written wishes are not. Barry Lamb's exciting new podcast, Hi-Fi Nation, can be found by searching on iTunes for the phrase Hi-Fi, that's H-I-P-H-I, Nation. And you can also find the website at HiFiNation.org. Barry Lamb, thanks so much for joining us, and I hope that both of our podcasts will exist in perpetuity forever after we pass on. All right, fantastic. Thanks again. If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at, at @elucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.